This is Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? Hey, welcome to Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? I'm Molly Stillman, and this is a podcast where I get to sit down with a different guest each week and have raw, funny, often brutally honest conversations about the things that matter most, faith, business, life, and everything in between, where we each learn how to be good stewards of the things we've been entrusted with, even our stories, and how we can use those things to serve others, to leave our families, our friendships, our communities a little better than we found them. I want to create a space where people are unafraid to be themselves and unafraid to ask the questions the rest of us are thinking. My goal is to make you laugh, cry, and laugh till you cry. Buckle up, friends. You are in for a treat today. My guest is Jamie Winship. He has decades of experience bringing peaceful solutions to some of the world's highest conflict areas. After a distinguished career in law enforcement in the metro D.C. area, Jamie earned a master's in English and developed a unique process called the Identity Method. This process of identity transformation is the key to resolving inner conflict and acquiring new levels of learning and creativity in any field. His unconventional efforts to bring about societal and racial reconciliation led him to Indonesia, Jordan, Iraq, Palestine, Israel, and back to the U.S. Jamie's worked with leaders in professional sports, business, education, law enforcement, government, nonprofit, and other sectors. He is the author of Living Fearless, Exchanging the Lies of the World for the Liberating Truth of God. He and his wife, Donna, are co-founders of the Identity Exchange, providing training and consulting in the transformative power of living fearlessly in your true identity. Have you ever thought or wondered if fear is controlling your life? Have you ever felt powerless? Have you ever lived with regrets? Have you ever felt like a failure or been stuck in unhealthy patterns? Too many people feel like everything depends on them and don't feel good enough to handle it all. Years of painful life experiences have caused people to develop beliefs about themselves that are just not true. It's that false identity. Jamie and his team at Identity Exchange help people discover their true identity so they really can experience a life of joy, peace, and freedom. But let me tell you, this conversation with Jamie is going to blow you away. His stories are unbelievable. And at times your mouth is going to just be agape and you're going to be like, how is this real? (laughs) I'm telling you, this conversation is going to be so impactful. It is, I'm probably going to put this episode in one of my top favorite episodes of all time. And we've got almost 350 episodes under our belt. So I'm, I'm not just blowing smoke here. Okay. You're going to love this episode. You're going to want to share it with everyone because it is so impactful and so empowering. Oh man, I, I, I could have talked to Jamie for 17 hours. So sit back, buckle up. You are going to love this conversation with Jamie Winship. I am so excited to welcome Jamie Winship to the show. Jamie, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I have I've been looking forward to this for so long. So I'm just I'm I cannot wait uh, to get to know you more and to have you tell some just incredible stories. So I started following your work back. uh, I don't even remember uh, over a year ago. And so I'm just really excited to learn more about uh, your work uh, with Identity Exchange and how we really come into our God-given identities and callings and all that kind of stuff. But before we do that, you got to give us the Jamie 101. So tell us who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are today, which I know is a pretty loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, yeah. So I was born, uh, as we were, you and I were talking earlier, up in Washington, D.C., Born there in the city and grew up in that area. And then when I was 14, I dreamed about 
being a police officer one day. And so I made kind of this commitment, emotional commitment at 14 to getting into that vocation. And that's what I did. I got out of high school, went to college at Radford University in Virginia, and then in the criminal justice program and, and then into the police department back up in DC, Northern Virginia area. Spent five years doing that, loved every second of it, would have stayed there happily my whole career, uh, except I got interviewed by the CIA in my fifth year. And um, they were interested in how I was doing the kind of work I was doing on the police department, where I learned it, um, when I explained it to them, which had a, mostly to do with my faith. Um, they asked me if I could, if I was able to do the same kind of work overseas, would I have the same kind of results? And I said, uh, yeah, if the, as long as they're humans <laughs> over there as well as here. And so, um, so they offered me a job which led to a negotiation, which led to graduate school. And then we left the U.S. in 2000, no, in 1990. Sorry, we left the U.S. in 1990 for to go work in the Muslim world. And we were we spent the better part of 27 years overseas. Came back into the U.S. in 2016 and started the, the work that we did overseas was a lot of um, peace, conflict, counterterrorism kind of work. And um, we came back in the U.S. in 2016 and realized that the U.S. was as violent as any place we'd lived overseas, just a different kind of violence. But And so then we thought, well, we learned a lot working in militant organizations. What could we do in a U.S. city um, with gangs and that sort of thing? And so we started working in the Pacific Northwest, in Portland and Seattle area, and created a company called Identity Exchange because identity is really where everything comes down to in a human is their understanding of their identity, identity of God and the identity of their neighbor, really. And so we started working on that in the in the cities, started working with NFL teams and then companies and nonprofits, and it just grew from there. So that's where we are today. And I decided to write a book that came out of a lecture series we did in Salt Lake City at a, at a men's function. And so we wrote the book called um, Living Fearless. And yeah, that's it. That's where we are now. We're working on book two on Worldview coming oh. out and be out next year. That is awesome. That is awesome. Yes. Yeah. So Living Fearless, Exchanging the Lies of the World for the Liberating Truth of God. Uh, it came mm -hmm. out this past fall, I guess. And um, it is just such a powerful book and so much a, a culmination, I feel like, in, in, in a testimony to the work that you've been doing for the last number of years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I feel a kinship to you already just because, you know, we're we're both from the Northern Virginia yeah. area. I had a lot of my best friends went to Radford and um, I went to school um, in the peninsula in Newport News at Christopher Newport. Right. And yeah. yeah, yeah. And I just I so I think us fellow Virginians right. <laughs> who are right. now not living yeah. in Virginia. <laughs> Yeah, we know all the same streets, even. I know. I know. Okay. All right. Here's yeah. a true test of your Northern Virginia uh, citizenship. Did yeah. you ever eat at the Tortilla Factory in Herndon? Absolutely. Oh, oh my, gosh. my gosh, Jamie, yeah. we are meant to be best friends. <laughs> we, we actually lived right near it when we were first married. We lived right right down the road in some apartments down there oh. off of what off of Herndon Parkway. Oh my know. gosh. Okay. So I lived on, I grew up on Jackson street, which was behind yeah. the tortilla factory. So right. I, I could walk the, to the tortilla factory. And for the people <laughs> listening, you're like, what? 
this is not the first time. I just want to say in like 350 episodes of this podcast, this is not the first time the Tortilla Factory has come up. It has been yeah. closed for over a decade and I still yeah. talk about it yeah. because it was that yeah. good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We know Herndon really well. Yeah. So we're yeah. we're very clearly we have a a, a kinship here. Yeah. Um. So right. okay. So obviously, uh, I you know I I followed your you know your work and I've just been um really really just amazed at the work that you've been doing and how you have incorporated your faith into it because. For a lot of people on the outside, they might not necessarily immediately be like, oh, yeah, somebody who is in, uh, you know, law enforcement or working for, you know, with the CIA and overseas is regularly talking about their faith. I mean, sure, but it just doesn't necessarily on the surface seem that that's kind of how it goes. Now, I, I would love for you to tell a story of what kind of when you when you started as a police officer, which obviously, you know, when you were kind of called to be a police officer as a teenager, you become mm -hmm. a police officer and you had been doing some really incredible work that obviously got you noticed by the CIA. And there was one story in particular that I heard about that I'd love for you to kind of share that kind of, I think, gives a framework for this. Um, and that's a story of a kidnapping um, mm -hmm. that I know that had, had happened and what happened uh, during that that particular incident. This, so yeah, this happened, uh, and you would know this area as well from being up, being up in that area, growing up there. But um, yeah, there was a, an abduction from a bus stop. And so this was in, in the eighties, um, which is important because we didn't in the eighties, we didn't have computers in our cars. We didn't have all that sort of thing. And kidnappings were rare, you know? Um, and so to have, so, it, it, so the school calls the police and says, you know, we're missing a student. We've contacted the parents, the parents took the child to the bus stop, all of that. And, you know, it's a couple hours late into the event, which is disastrous in these kind of situations every hour is just like decreases hope and it wasn't a domestic it was just a random bizarre thing and so um you know we're interviewing kids at the bus stop who are not good witnesses little elementary kids are god bless them they're so funny but they i've got no two elementary evidence. kids yeah they're they're yeah. not the best witnesses like they're let's at, at an easter egg hunt this past weekend there was like rumor that it, that the the golden egg with the 40 dollars had been stolen you ask every single kid what happened and they all have a different story yeah, so, that's right yeah. yeah it's amazing what they're concentrating on at any given moment yeah so that was interesting what they wanted to talk about but so I go to, we go, my partner and I go to interview the parents and, um, you know, they're obviously very upset and I was emotional about it as well. If you're a police officer and you're dealing with any kind of child crime, it's the worst. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I'm talking to the father, especially, and he's distraught and I'm emotional too. Our kids, two of our sons were very young at the time. So I'm like empathizing with the guy and, and I tell him, um, we're going to find your, we're going to find this, this child. Which, you know, as a police officer, you're not allowed to do to ever say something like that to a, especially to a parent and, you know, give false expectation. My partner was really upset that I did that. And when we were walking away and I said, I don't know why I said it. I just felt like I should say it was the right thing to say. But, you know, I realized I probably shouldn't have said it. So he and I split up. I go get in my car and I drive down the road just a few blocks away from where it happened. And um, at this, so I'm a couple of years into my job uniform officer and i'm experimenting with um asking god questions in the course of 
police work for a lot of a lot of different reasons. But and my question, I, and so in situations, I would ask God, like, if you were going to communicate with me about this situation, how would you do it? How would I know it's you? All of these kind of theological questions. Then I read about in the Bible, it seems like those folks had pretty open communication with God. And did it stop? Does God know anything about police work? Does he only speak on religious issues? You know, these kinds of questions. And so I was, I just prayed and I said, God, if you were going to tell me where this kid is, how would you do it? How would I know? I know you know. Do you still tell things like this? Do you still say things like this? How would I know it's your voice? And all this, all these sorts of practical questions. And I said, where, how would I know? And so it's interesting, any kind of creative process in a human being always begins with asking a question. And it's stunning how many people just don't ask questions in life. They just go through life. They don't ask any questions. Um, they just kind of conform to patterns. And so, and then if you do ask a question, we can talk about this later, but this is the creative process. It's fabulous. When you ask a question, then you should wait for an answer or look for an answer, right? So when you ask God a question, you need to pay attention to everything in the day, nature, conversations, things you read in the Bible, and everything. When you ask God, God can speak in so many ways. And um, and so I asked a question and I'm just sitting there and you know, praying about justice and all of that. And this car comes past me down the road, just going the speed limit, not fast or anything, just passes me at normal. It's a guy in the car. And I feel like really sick to my stomach. I feel like someone punched me in the stomach. And so at this point in my career, I know I'm asked, I've asked a question. I'm, I'm very aware of my surroundings. Talk about this in the book, you know, it's attention, awareness, enunciation, then action. And so I'm very aware and I'm like, wow, why, oh, why do I feel this way in my stomach? What's going on? Okay, this car just passed me. I asked this question. And so I just move on it. So then I take action. Like maybe this is God saying communicating to me about this car with this feeling. And so I pull the car over. I actually cut him off and get out. And it's just this guy in the car. The car is empty. And I just said, get out and open your trunk right now. Open your trunk. And he pops out of the car. He opens up the trunk. And there's the kid is in the trunk of the car. And so, you know, I was shocked. He, the guy was really shocked. Yeah. It was, yeah, the, the, the guy did not know how I why how i figured it out it really scared him actually it was interesting but so the kid's okay the guy was just waiting he was you know pretty smart he's waiting for all the searching and the helicopter to stop searching and then he was just going to drive out of the community so uh the, the i called the detectives they come they arrest a the guy and then the lead detective says to me what was your probable cause for stopping this car why how did you know to stop this car and so I, when I went, I said, well, I was praying about, you know, I was asking God and, and he, the detective, he said, no, 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 you can't, don't tell me something. You don't, can't say something like that. You have to be able to testify in court why you stopped that car. And so this was just the beginning of God helping me understand when God interacts with us, you have to be able to explain what happened to a person that doesn't have the faith background. Yeah. This was a huge lesson for me to learn because if I if I'm walking around talking in prophetic biblical language to people that don't believe the Bible or have never read it, it doesn't make any sense to them. Yeah. And so the Lord was teaching me when I act, when I move, you have to be able to translate it to people around you who can understand it. And all of that is Habakkuk chapter two, fascinatingly. It's Habakkuk chapter two is Habakkuk's one of the few prophets that actually tells the process of how he hears. 
most of the prophets just tell what God has said, but they don't tell you how they heard it or determined it. Habakkuk does. Wow. The last, the last part of what he says is you have to be able to write it down so others can read it and move with it, which is huge. So that's like if Einstein has a vision of relativity or the traveling at the speed of light, but he can't demonstrate it in a paper that physicists can read and go, yeah, that's true. Then it's just intuition in his head that's of no real value. And unfortunately, that's how Christians talk a lot. They know these things and they say them, but it can't be translated into a language that people can say, okay, oh, now I, I know what to do as a police officer. It just turns into this, wow, that weird guy over there did this. He's awesome. We'll never be like that. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it just turned, what that turns into is celebrity faith. Wow. And it's not, it's not helpful. This is what any human can do anytime. I, and there's no way to like predict it, obviously, but it begins a life of asking God questions and listening for answers. And when he answers, a lot of times the real challenge is doing what he says when he answers. That's another whole big challenge. Yeah. Um, it's like when you ask for wisdom, God says he gives it liberally, but don't ask and not do, right? Yeah. Yeah, you got it when you ask for wisdom. And so when we pray for wisdom, our first prayer is, God, we're going to ask you a question about something and we're going to ask for wisdom and we know you're going to give it. So before we ask for the wisdom that we know you're going to give, would you give us the courage to do what you're about to say? That's a big deal. Wow. Um, I, I, well, deal. I'm curious because that is such a good lesson. And I had never, cons- I mean, I've read Habakkuk uh, a couple of times. I had never put those two pieces together um, and how much that translates just to us as I mean, we're all like when we come to faith in Christ, like we are all apostles, like we are all disciples, like we are constantly right. learning yeah. and right. we are to go and to make disciples. Um, mm-hmm. But then how how do we do that on a practical level? And how do we, you know, explain and share our testimonies in a way that that people who aren't have a don't have a faith background right. uh, can can understand? And that's one of the things right. that I actually I mean, I, I really feel like on a on a almost a cellular level has been a goal of mine with this show is to Great. to have those conversations that help people who might not have a framework of faith to be able to be like, oh, well, that's really interesting. I'd never thought of that before or thing, right. things like that. But I'm curious, that's like right. on a practical level, you know, and you, I love how you said that that was such a big lesson for you. Like in that particular instance, what did you say? Because I was thinking that too, <laughs> like thinking to myself, like these people are going to be like, how? Well, you can't just like pull a guy over. You know, you've got to have yeah. probable probable cause. So, like, what did you do in that moment? And how did you then kind of go back and look? Okay, I would have done the same thing again. You know, I would have listened to God, but then here's how I would have handled it differently right. afterwards. That's right. Well, so what happened? Yeah, in that case, and um, it's such a beautiful learning process with the Lord. And you know, you can just imagine him walking with their disciples all the time teaching them to pay attention to things that they don't pay attention to, and then teaching them how to communicate with others. But so in that situation, the investigator who, you know, was, he's a great guy. He said to me in this, in these situations, you know, you're going to have to be able to explain in court. Well, what happened in court was the guy just confessed. I mean, he didn't, he, he was so, he knew he had a sense. I have a box full of letters from people I've, I've actually arrested thanking me for what happened because he knew that God had intervened in that. He knew it. Wow. The, guy, the driver, because he knew I didn't, he knew 
what I told him later when I was talking to him, I said, the reason I stopped you is because I asked God to show me where that kid was. And he said, I knew, I knew it. And he felt like it was God actually trying to rescue him wow from what was broken inside of him so when he when we went to didn't go to trial just he just it was a plea plea bargain which happened a lot of times later on when i would do this i would actually tell the person in the interview look i was praying about this and i feel like this is god's um desire to bring healing in your life and a lot of people believe it or not are are grateful a lot of bad guys are grateful because they don't know how to stop the brokenness. Wow. They don't like it. They don't no. like it. That's the lie that people believe about bad people is that they somehow like it and they want to do it and we got to, you know, punish them. But they're like broken, shattered people that are doing things out of their own woundedness and false identity back to false identity. Their true them would never do what they're doing, but the false them will do it all day long. And, and so that's, that's another whole thing about how we got into working with like the question of identity. Yeah. And when you call a person a pedophile or a, when I call a person that I'm cursing them mm. and I'm reaffirming the name that the enemy calls them, wow. I become, in, I, I'm in agreement with the liar who calls them that name because Jesus would never say that about them. Right. Right. Yeah. Man, so that is so convicting. Pay attention to this stuff because we do it all day long. We do. we do it on the news. We do it all day long. And um, yeah, there's a lot to be said about that. With your mouth, you can curse or bless all day long. And we just don't pay attention. We're not paying attention to things we say. Well, I'm just truth telling. No, you're not. You're accusing is what you're doing. That's yeah. not truth telling. That's accusing. And that's what Satan does to humans. He right. accuses them before the father. If you want to be a truth teller, tr truth sets people free. That's what truth does. It doesn't accuse them, it sets them free. So we have to be thinking about those important words and, and what they mean when Jesus says them or when the scriptures talk about them. Yeah. Well, I did um, prison ministry for quite a few years at a um, the maximum security women's prison here in the Raleigh area. And every time I would, you know, meet with these women who on paper, you know, you would look and see the things that they had done that landed them there. And many of them, especially some of the women who are on, on death row are, uh, you know, lifetime movies have been made about some of the things that they've done, you know, yeah, that's right. but you would sit there and, and I would have conversations with these women and you could see the brokenness that was within them and the regret and the, the shame. And, but to have somebody to sit down and to just look them in the eye and see them, for who God created them to be rather than the things that were on their rap sheet um, right. was really transformative for both them and for me, honestly, right. because sure. it made me yeah. look at these women in just such a different light. Um, so right. that's, man, that's such a powerful, powerful lesson. And yeah, you're, I mean, there's, you know, and then we could get into the, all the like... <laughs> The talk about, you know, there's like really not one Satan. There's like many. <laughs> and so like, yeah, it just means accuser. And so like when we, I that's convicting for me too. Cause I, I, you know, if I ever say something, oh, that person is blah, 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 blah. Like that's exactly what I'm doing is I'm just becoming mm -hmm. the accuser, man. That'll preach. Um, yeah. Okay. So you obviously have this experience. You get, uh, you know, the CIA kind of says, hey, you think you could do some of this uh, Holy Spirit work in mm -hmm. the Middle East. You pack up your family. How old were, were your kids at the time? They were um, five, three, and 10 months old. Yeah. So that's a pretty like big decision that you and your wife 
made to yeah. move to conflict zones mm-hmm. with three young children. Um, mm-hmm. But you, I know you've talked about this in in your book and, um, you know, in just the work that you do is that you knew that this was, this was your identity. This was the thing that God had been calling you to do. And you were trusting right. him in that fully and completely. So I want to, you know, kind of fast forward a little bit because I, you know, I think we, we, we know that you went over there and you started doing some of this work now for people to understand on a kind of nuts and bolts level, you weren't in the military. So you weren't living on a, you know, a, a, an American base. So, but you were kind of hired by the CIA. So what, what, like logistically, I always have logistical questions. You were just kind of living in like regular civilization. Right. So this, so this is really the, this, it's kind of the subject of my next book, but so when the, when I, the CIA, the state department interviewed me and they were asking me, you know, how did you do this? And how did you know how to like stop that car and all that stuff? They were interviewing me over five years of casework. So they had five years of my casework and they were flipping through it and they were asking me questions about certain cases. How did you do this? Why did you let this guy go? How did you know to, all that stuff? And they just wanted to know if I could articulate it in a way that made sense to them. That's what they wanted to know. And could I do it in other environments? And so I said, yeah. So then they gave me a real situation they were working on in the time. So this was years ago, right? And um, they told me this the case they were working in, and it had, their solution had failed. And they didn't know what to do next. And so, again, just for anyone that is, you know, one of the great incentives of being in the kingdom of of knowing Christ is that you have the you you have the mind of Christ and you're filled with the spirit of the living God. I mean, that should make you different in your vocation than everybody else. Amen. It doesn't mean we're morally better. I mean, work with Mormon guys. They're the most moral people I've ever met in my life. That's not what this mind of Christ and the spirit of the living God does. It means that you think at the same level as God thinks about things. Mm. Right, right. But you're you're a co-creator with God. It's creativity is the difference, not moralism. That the Pharisees were moral, but they had no sense of creativity. Evil doesn't require imagination. Evil mm. just imitates. Right, creativity. The Holy Spirit creates imagination, intuition, those kinds of things. And so, so when they were, they said, "What would you do in this scenario?" I told them exact. I, I prayed in front of them, and I said, "Let me just ask." Let me just ask God a question about this before I answer so I could just show him my process. God, what do you want me to know about this thing and what do you want me to do? Those are the two questions I always ask God. What do you want me to know that I don't know? I assume I don't know things. And then what do you want me to do as a result of what you just told me? And so I did it with them. And then I said, here's what I would do in this scenario. And they loved it. And they were like, okay, that makes perfect sense. We, we don't know why we didn't think of that. We hire you. And I said, okay, but here's one of the big mistakes you made. You went in there as part of U.S. foreign policy. That's a big mistake. As soon as this becomes part of U.S. foreign policy, now you're empire building. And what I'm doing is kingdom building. I'm not empire building. I'm kingdom building. And people, the kingdom is good news to people. And the empire is not. Empire causes conflict. Kingdom brings reconciliation. So they didn't quite get that. But I said, here's what this means. I, my question is, is God inviting me into this challenge, not is the State Department inviting me into this challenge? I think God is, but I think God is inviting me in such a way that the State Department is not involved. So the guy says to me, you mean you're willing to take this challenge without 
being contractually aligned with us and being <laughs> receiving funding from us? And I said, yes, because if I take funding from you, I will fall into the same trap that every other person has fallen into in this scenario. Let me, I know how to do it apart from your paradigm's wrong, but I have to set up a new paradigm that doesn't involve you and it will accomplish what you hope, but it'll also accomplish what the kingdom hopes. Wow. So see, and so the, so the guy was stunned. He was like, yeah. you're kidding. You're going to do this without CIA funding. And I said, that's exactly right. Because it's the only way it'll work. Because if these young Muslim fighters are transformed, which they will be, and it'll cause them to stop fighting, which is what you want. If they find out that that's that Jesus is somehow attached to U.S. foreign policy, it'll start a war. Wow. Because so Jesus how, isn't attached to that. So how did you get funding? <laughs> like, go, oh, how did so, you afford so, to live there? Yeah. I'm so, so I said, so I said, Amazing. what you want, it, you want what you want. It's I said, this is like Moses in the Bible. That's why the Bible's so great. So oh, who, yeah. funded, who funded Moses's education? Moses, for Moses to be a deliverer and a statesman at the level that he was going to be for Israel, he had to be trained by the best, by the best Messian statespeople in the world, and that was Egypt. So he had to go to the Harvard of Egypt to be trained. So who trained him? They did. So I said, so I'm going to be like Moses. I'll get the Muslim country to finance this project. That way, no matter what happens, they're the ones that initiated it, not the U.S. forcing someone to do something. I said, I'll get them to fund it. So I went to grad school. I needed a graduate degree to do it. I needed to study under this one person to make. This is all just stuff I felt like the Lord helped me think create wow. this whole new scenario. And then we built the scenario. And then I went to grad school. Like I had to train under this one linguist. I knew if I trained under her and I said, I wanted to do research in her name, anywhere in the world would let me into their country because of her fame. Wow. And then I, and then, so I ended up in exactly the place where the state department wanted me, but funded by the government of that country. Unbelievable. <laughs> so I, got, I got paid by the government of that country. Unbelievable. That is incredible. Oh my gosh. But what, for you to have the, I mean, I know that we ask, I mean, it's one of the prayers that God will always answer with a yes is that we ask him for more wisdom. And so to see how you asked God for wisdom in this situation, and he gave you to a T the wisdom you needed to be able to, to go into there and to be successful and to do his work um, is just mind blowing. And the people, I mean, you just, I think about the ripple effects and the people that will be impacted by that on all sides for generations yeah. to come in, in ways that you might not even know um, is just incredible. So you get there, you're living there with your kids, which obviously, I, I mean, I think of, I have, you know, two kids who are seven and nine. And I just think about, we live on a farm and, you know, they walk to the end of the driveway, which is, you know, like almost a quarter of a mile long. And I'm like, whatever. But then, you know, they go out into the the city and I'm like, I would never imagine that they would be out there by themselves, like not not, a, you know, not going to happen. And then I think about the translation into living in the Middle East in a conflict zone, like has to be pretty intimidating. And so um, there's a story I'd love for you to tell that I know a couple years living there, you kind of had a, a come to Jesus moment where you were really struggling if you'd been, I think you'd been living there. I think, I think I'd read that you'd been living there maybe 15 years or something like that at this point. Mm -hmm. And you were really struggling about feeling like you weren't keeping your, your family safe. Um, mm -hmm. And you had a come to Jesus moment about that. So I'd love for you to tell that story. So we spent uh, a number of years 
working in um, Southeast Asia in that world. And then we, when we finished that, we were sent to um, Iraq and in Baghdad. And so we were in Baghdad 2003 and 2004, which is pretty intense years there. And, and as you say, again, we don't, we didn't work on a military compound or anything. We lived in central Baghdad, just in a regular Muslim neighborhood. And it was very, you know, it was obviously very, very tense. And but there's way. So let me just say, whenever we went anywhere, and this is about the fear part of it. When you, whenever we went anywhere, our question was, and I ask people this all the time. I say, pray this prayer all the time. God, what am I doing for you that you never asked me to do? Yeah. So I'm like, because we're always doing stuff. God's like, what do you do? I didn't ask you to do this. Wow. I didn't yeah. invite you into doing this. You're doing it because you feel guilty or someone, whatever. So to go some, to move your kids. And so at the time we went to Baghdad, our, two of our sons were still with us. They were 17 and 14. So it was a lot of, they were, you know, it was a terrible situation. In fact, um, someone told me before we moved that you're, that I was a poor steward of the children God had given me for taking our kids into that kind wow. of danger. That was interesting. Um, but so, uh, but I, the only reason I we went is because I knew God was inviting me. And it, because I know my identity in the kingdom, it, it makes perfect sense that he would invite the, my identity into that scenario. Am I right? So it wasn't like I had to, I'm like, oh my gosh, God's sending us into this awful place. And, you know, and, and we we just have to like grit our teeth and go. I, it filled us with joy and excitement. It's because it's who we are. Yeah. It's not even what we do. It's who we are. And we knew, of course, he would put us there. So we went there. But um, so while we were there, you know, they, they were kidnapping um, foreigners and doing brutal stuff to him while we were there and it was getting more intense and all that was going on. And our kids were commuting to school in a car and we couldn't go with them because we couldn't attract attention to the vehicle. Cause so they had to go by themselves with an Iraqi driver, but they had to sit in the car like they were a family. So one, two, two of them would sit up, you know, one of our sons would sit up front with the driver and one in the back. So it looked like a family and they changed cars all the time, but it was still them by themselves and we couldn't talk to them because there was no phone infrastructure and so they would just get in the car in the morning and leave, and it would take them 45 minutes or an hour to get across the city to mm. because of the fighting and the roadblocks and all that stuff. And when they would get to the school, they could contact us and say, we made it. So they were doing this every day. And I don't know how to describe this to people, but you would be sitting at your house or, or, or where I taught at the university there, and I would hear these car bombs going off, you know, mm. and they would break the windows in the university. That's how strong they were mm. and had no idea where my kids were and what car they where they were anywhere in the city um and it just wears wears on you no matter how much uh uh you know how much trust you have it just wears on you day to day to day to day day after day and so um so i was becoming more fearful well it so my fear level wasn't like i'm afraid to live here and i don't want to be here anymore it my fear made me start to stop start to um stop talking to my iraqi co-workers Hmm. so you can't love people that you're afraid of, right? You never will love a person you're afraid of. And so that's, that's how the enemy keeps us separate is he keeps us afraid of each other. And then we don't ever interact. So I was speaking less and less to my um, coworkers. And then my American team also, because I was the leader, also stopped communicating with, and so fear just spreads like cancer. Yeah, It's really quick, because it's so easy to be afraid. And it's, it's more disciplined to be joyful. And so it just was growing. And and so one night I just couldn't stand it. I was really, and I was thinking about, you know, my father-in-law thought I was crazy for taking his grandkids overseas. You know, what if they got killed and I'd have to answer to him and all the fear just 
because then it goes up into your imagination and your imagination when it's not fixed on Christ is super dangerous because now the enemy has your imagination yeah. and all the scenarios you imagine are harmful and dangerous. So I knew I had to get that under control, but I can't, you can't just make yourself do it. So I went up on the roof of our house in on the street, lived on a bag that has big flat roofs where they sleep at night because it's so hot. And I was up on the roof. I don't know. It was, you know, two or one or two, three in the morning, something like that. And our house was in between two gigantic mosques and the Sunni mosque on the right and the Shia on the left was Iranian. And they, you know, they scream all day long about like, kill the Americans and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Wow. And so I was out there and, and I was looking to my right and my left. And I just, I said to God, I, and this is confession. Confession is not telling God you're sorry. Confession is telling the truth to God about what you really believe about him, yourself and others. Mm. And I just said, God, this is what I believe about you right now. And this is what's causing me to be afraid is I believe that you are either unable or unwilling to protect my kids in this environment. And because you're unable or unwilling, that means it's my responsibility. And I know I can't do it. And it's paralyzing me in fear. Right. So when a human being gets to a place where they think everything in their life depends on them, which is where most of us are most of the time. Right. And, and we realize we can't really do it. That's a pretty desperate position to be in. Right? And that's most of us. And so I confessed. And that's what confession is. It's just telling God your truth. Just say it. Tell him the truth. He already knows. Just say it. And I yelled it because I was upset. Um, I believe that you're either unable or unwilling to protect my kids. I need you to tell me the truth. So confession is us telling God our truth. Repentance is him telling us his truth that makes us live in a new way. Mm. Right? There's no sorry involved in any of this process. I'm not I wasn't sorry. I I was deceived. I was thinking incorrectly about it, but I didn't know how. Cuz sure it made sense. Sure it made sense that they were going to get killed in this environment. And so I just said, Lord, you tell me the truth because your truth will set me free. And so when I said that, I was just standing there, I yelled it. And then I looked over to my right on the roof and in the right corner up on the roof of our house was a soldier. I saw a soldier standing there and a big soldier. And he was like in the U.S. fatigues, like a century. And I'm looking at him and it's an American uniform. It's a U.S. uniform. And I'm looking at him thinking, where did that guy come from? Like, who is that? Who is he? Because I know we weren't anywhere. Near. I could see the green zone way across the city from where we are. I knew it wasn't. I'm like, why is a U.S. soldier standing on my roof? And how did he get up here? And then I look to my left and there's another one on that corner house. And their backs are to me. They're like looking at the mosque. They're each looking at the mosque. And then there's two behind me when I look behind me there. So on the four corners of the roof are these four different soldiers or sentries. And I knew. I knew I could feel it in my body. It was like this overwhelming feeling, kind of awe that these were not U.S. soldiers, that they were God saying, showing me, demonstrating to me the truth of his protection over us. And I knew they were angels. And this has happened other times, but it's kind of like it matches the level of fear. God like matches your level of fear with his with his reassurance. And so I always tell people, you want to see angels go in a place where you better see angels. Yeah, Most people don't, yeah. want, don't ever want to go to those places. That's why they don't see them. But, and so I just 
I just said, I just said, thank you for serving the most high God. And I just, I went in and I was like, wow. that was it. That was the end of the fear. And then it's interesting. The next morning I was talking to my 17 year old son, who's now an FBI agent, interestingly. Wow. And I said, I said to him, I said, are you afraid here? Cause he's the one getting in the car every day. Him and his brother, are you afraid here? And he said to me, are you afraid? And it was such a good question because ki our kids learn to be afraid from us. We're the ones that teach them to be afraid. All fear is learned. Right. All fear is learned. And so he, he asked me, are you afraid? And unfortunately, it, it was after that night. And I said, actually, I'm not. And he said, well, then why would I be afraid? Wow. Um, and so, yeah. So that's the beauty is just tell God the truth about what you're afraid. I do it every day. Every day I tell the Lord what I'm afraid of. And fears in all kinds of different situations. You know, it doesn't have to be that dramatic. It's just, I'm afraid to go try this project. I'm afraid to stand up in front of this group. I'm afraid to write a book. I'm all the things we're afraid of because we feel it's all on us. We can't do it. And then just asking God, what do you want me to know about this? What do you say about this? And then receiving what he says and then moving. Truth tell, mind change, form change. That's what we call it. Confession, repentance, transformation. Truth tell, mind change, form change. You just live in that beautiful regenerative cycle with God all the time. That's called abiding in him. This is one of those things that I have been actively trying to work on in my own life over the last couple of years. And um, I think it was about the year maybe 2018 or 2019 where I had been walking. So I, I got saved at the age of 25. And um, so I've been walking with the Lord almost 13 years now. And you know, I, and, and for me, it was a moment of bringing me to my knees where I had been trying to do everything in my own strength and my own power for a really long time. And, and, and God brought me to a rock bottom where he was like, I'm going to continue to break you, <laughs> you know, but you know what I mean? Where it's just this moment of, I had to get to that realization of, I, ca I cannot do this on my own. And, um, and so it's been a slow process of sanctification, painful, over the last, you know, 12 plus years. Um, but there was a, a period, uh, like I said, in about 2018, 2019, where I just realized that I was kind of walking a, I was strolling with God, <laughs> if that makes sense. I was just kind of taking a leisurely stroll rather than really running after God and chasing after God and, and trying to actively grow in my faith. And one of those areas was in prayer. And I, just, I feel like I, I just, I don't know. I just struggled with prayer for some reason. I felt like I had to have really, really flowery language and I wasn't, my prayers weren't fancy enough and I wasn't like praying right, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, which is yeah. absurd, but it, it was, I was getting in my own way and it was during that time. And I by no means have arrived in any way, shape or form. Um, but it, that really began a process for me of kind of what you said of just taking my questions to God, just telling God what's on my mind. And sometimes it's in the form of a prayer journal. Sometimes it's in the car where I'm just driving down the road and I'm having an out loud conversation with God where I'm just trying to be like, Lord, this is on my mind right now. I don't know what to do in this situation or, you know, all those types of things. And um, so I think for a lot of people, this concept sounds really great of like taking our questions to God and asking him for wisdom and you know, confession and repentance. And I love the way that you so eloquently just explained that, that cycle um, and the importance of it. But for a lot of people that it's really hard, 
Do you have any practical pieces of advice for where to start with something like that? And I realize it's not like necessarily like a checklist, but if you're working with somebody, especially your work with identity exchange, because I know that this is a big piece of that, is when you get somebody who's like, I I don't know what to do. I'm totally lost. I'm ridden with fear. Um, you know, I just am just overwhelmed or I... I haven't talked to God in years, or I haven't prayed in decades or whatever it is, or I don't know what kind of questions to ask God, where do you start? Yeah. So that's a great question. And yeah. And so I like do this every day with people. And so the thing that's just, as I said earlier, the thing that stops most people, that most people, the emotion that most people are dealing with regularly, the negative emotion, which is what I ask people all the time. What's the main negative emotion you're dealing with? So forget trying to pray, forget all that. Just what's the main negative emotion you're dealing with on a regular basis in wherever I am in the world, whatever age group, whatever religious background, the main thing they're dealing with is fear. They're afraid, they're anxious, they're stressed out, whatever whatever the words, it's fear. And so, okay, so the fear is is a God-given emotion. The value of fear is the fear is pointing you towards a belief or an action that is going to hurt you. That's what fear is for. Right. So if you're walking towards a cliff, the closer you get to the cliff, the louder the fear gets. As soon as you turn around, you don't even have to move away. Just turn around and face the other direction. The fear drops. Fear's job is to say what you're thinking or doing or walking towards is going to kill you. But it doesn't name exactly what it is. It's like a warning light. Yeah. It's like your your engine light goes off and you have to take it to a mechanic and he says, oh, it's specifically this. So the question to ask God is the beginning is. What am I afraid of? What am I most afraid of in my life right now? That's the main question. Cast all your care on him because he cares for you. Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, always bringing to God your fear. Always. That's the number one place to start. I love this verse. This is how I do it every day. The first Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. It's this rejoice always. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There it is. Here it is. Here's the will of God for you today. Rejoice, pray without ceasing, give thanks. Okay, so so my question is, okay, with a person, okay, we're going to rejoice. Why would you not rejoice today? What prevents you today from rejoicing? Now we're off to it. Well, I would rejoice, but I'm afraid what? Of what? So the very beginning, rejoice is a challenge to truth tell. I can't rejoice. Why? Because I think I'm not smart enough. Because I don't think I look right. Because I'm not doing what I think I'm supposed to be doing. I can't rejoice. Okay, right. Let's deal with that first. And that is what we would say, the false you. So the the false you can't pray. It won't pray. It doesn't pray. And more than that, God can't listen to your false version of yourself. And most people, when they're praying, are praying from a false identity. It's so fascinating. Wow. Um, and they're actually, they're actually, this is, uh, this is from my own, I'm, I'm talking about myself here. You're actually self-protecting with God. Mm. You're actually protecting yourself against God. Because ultimately, the question that you're going to ask is, just like me on the roof, well, what does it mean you actually believe about God? That God only loves you if you pray all day long? That's wrong. That's wrong. Or God only loves, you know, if you do these certain things, or or you think that 
that God will protect you only if you pray enough? Like that's his condition is that you have to pray a certain number. All of that's false. And that's, and that means really it's on me. I'm the one that has to pray. I'm the one that has to, it's not true. That's not the case. So what, that's how I always start. What are you afraid of? Tell me what you're afraid of. I'm afraid that I'm powerless and alone. That's what I'm afraid of. Right. Okay, good. Let's start there. Every day, that's where we're going to start. Okay, where did you learn? Who told you that you were powerless and alone? You had to have learned that. Someone taught you that. Where'd you learn it? And this is where the false identity begins, right? False identity is conditioned thought patterns rooted in painful childhood experiences, which developed into belief systems that constantly inform your state of being. Mm. And most people don't even know it. So they don't know deep down, what do you really believe about God? I think God sort of helps me some of the time. That's really what we believe, but we would never say it. Mm. We try, but deep down, it is what we believe, and it's being, and it's it's a view of ourselves. I'm not super worthy of God. I'm kind of worthy of God. I'm kind of. He's kind of proud of me. No, he's crazy in love with you all the time, no matter what you do. If you don't understand that, you're going to come up with some kind of false view of yourself to present to God. Yeah. Right? And that's the false identity, right? And you see it all the time. And and so what God wants, he knit you together in your mother's womb. He's never left you, never forsaken you. Ask him who you are. Ask him what you need. Jesus says, the father knows what you need before you ask him. So here's a good prayer. What do I need? Mm. What do I need? And then when he tells you what you need, ask him for it. Wow. So I say, I have three sons, Lord. What do they need? And this is what he says to me. They need to grow up in Iraq. Now, what Christian father is going to go, that's a good idea. Nobody. And so I have to protect myself against that God that just said that. But I can't be an but I'm a Christian. So I have to figure out a way to navigate not really asking him his will, because I'm afraid of it, but kind of trying to do it. Do you see what I mean? Yes. And and Jesus says this, he who does not do the will of the Father cannot be my disciple. Right. Like, we don't ever talk about that verse. Yeah. Unless it's in something that I know I already do. So, so, but the beautiful thing is, whatever God, whenever you ask God, what do I need? What he's going to say you need is because he's crazy in love with you. Yeah. And he's like, you know, and then he, and then he says, because I love you so much, that kid right there, he needs to be a skateboarder for Jesus in order for him to be a skateboarder for Jesus. Cause it's in his heart to do it. I put it there with him. He knows it. It's with me. He needs to train in the middle East. You need to get him there. Yeah. Right. And see, most parents, this isn't how they pray. It's not what they're asking. It's how do I keep my kids safe from all harm? That's not the prayer. That's never been the prayer. That's the that's the prayer of the enemy saying, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. I'll give it all. I'll, you want favor and wealth? I'll give it to you. But you got to bow down to me. And we do it. But without we're not super real. We're not paying attention because the liar is so good. Right. So. Yeah. Praying with that. So I always start with like, Lord, what what am I most afraid of? What am I afraid of? Because what I want to live in is joy. Right. Right. So love leads to joy. Love leads to joy. So if you're convinced of God's unconditional love for you, joy comes out of it. That's why everything has to be sourced in love. So are you going to Iraq or wherever because of love? No. Then don't go, Paul says. Then don't go. Are you going to talk to this person 
motivated by love? No. One example that I was talking, we were, we were talking about interviewing suspects and terrorists. <laughs> and uh, this guy asked me the other day, like, what's the secret to a good interview with a suspect or a terrorist? And I said, oh, that you love them. And you should have seen his face. Wow. I said, yeah, that you love them. And he said, how can you love someone that's done all these horrible things? I said, I don't know. How does Jesus love us while we were his enemies? He died for us. How did he do it? I don't know. It's a miracle. But here's what I know. You can speak with the tongues of angels and the tongues of men. You can have all knowledge. You can lay down your life to the flames and sacrifice. If it's done without love, it's a waste of time. So if I'm going to go interview this guy and I don't do it with love, it's a waste of our time. Mm. But if I do it with love, watch what happens in the interaction between me and this guy. Watch what happened to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, that terrorist, what happened to him, right? And so, Lord, teach me to love you. Just that prayer, that's praying without ceasing all day long. God, teach me to love you. Teach me to move in love. Teach me to be motivated by love. And I will praise you and I will rejoice in that. And that's praying without ceasing. Yes. Teach me to hear your voice. Teach me to hear your voice. Teach me to hear your voice. It's not these long prayers. When we were in training in, in high stress situations, you memorize these little rhymes to keep you in the present tense. And they're just mantras. They're like, uh, and you say them all the time, like when you're in a high speed pursuit, so your mind doesn't go in the other car, because that's what will happen. You have to stay in your car. So you have to keep talking to yourself to keep yourself in your car and not that car. It's really interesting. So you don't get tunnel vision and you just chant to yourself. They teach you these chants. This is what prayer is. It's like Christ is for me. Christ is for me. Just saying it. That's praying without ceasing, right? Jesus Christ, son of God loves me. Yeah. Christ have mercy on me. Christ have mercy. Like these very They're so powerful and they're so beautiful and they're truth statements that set you free. And so like when I'm in, you know, got arrested and put on trial or when they're going to, you know, take you out to kill you in the desert, Christ is for me. God is for me. Christ is with me. The spirit is in me. Those are, that's praying without ceasing and it keeps you focused in the situation, right? I mean, I love this, uh, you know, especially as a parent, because I mean, and, yeah. and I think this is we can we are preaching this to ourselves. But then this is also a, such a huge part of parenting. And and if you're listening and you're not a parent, like you are impacting and you're influencing somebody in your life right. so that you can have an impact on so many people. But I, you know, one of the things that I, I try to do with my kids every single morning and, and they kind of, you know, at seven and nine, they used to kind of roll their eyes at it and they don't really anymore. But I would have them say things like. God goes before me. God knows my name. You know, God loves me. Uh, The same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives in me. I can do all things with Christ who gives me strength. Like all of those things that they can just begin to just marinate in throughout the day. And, and, and now like, if I don't do it with them in the morning, they're like, mom, are you going to do the thing with us? You know? And so, but those, those types of things that has been a lesson for me as well is, you know, I don't, and I love that we've talked a lot about fear because that is such a pervasive um, emotion that all of us experience. But, you know, I love that, you know, 365 times in the Bible, God says, do not fear. And I don't feel like that's an accident that there's just one for every day. There's just one verse for every single day where God God says, do not fear. Um, And I also love how it's like almost always comes after he is in their presence. Like it's like an angel shows up or God shows up and they're like, "Ah!" (laughs) he's like, we're scared of everything. Don't fear. 
And okay, so the other thing I, I well, there's two two more things I really wanted to ask, but but kind of piggybacking off of this this conversation about identity because so many people have been having this conversation. My friends and I just uh, my friend Abby and I were texting about this yesterday about we are having an identity crisis. There is an identity crisis in our culture, but especially in our young people. They are desperately searching for identity and they are finding it in the things that God has not that has God has not created them to be. And it's just this idea and I love what you said how identity is not what we do, it is who we are. And so there is this just desperate search for identity. And so as somebody who you know, if somebody's listening who is like, I am really struggling with an identity crisis, or I don't know what my identity is. I don't know who I am. I don't know who God created me to be. Or if they're a parent and their teenager is struggling with this and they're just floundering, um, where do you start? Where do you start? Because it feels so overwhelming for so many people. Yeah. So, so just for, I mean, for a parent from, from just from my own experience. So there, just to let everybody off the hook. There's no such thing as a Christian parent. Mm -hmm. Like there's no, that's just a purely invented idea. Yeah. What you, what you want to be is you want to give the gift of your identity to your kids. That's Mm -hmm. what a good parent does. And so um, the reason my kids are my kids is because God gave me the identity to give to them. That's their gift. Yeah. Right. And, and so, and the reason I'm married to my spouse is my gift to her is my identity and her gift to me is her identity. She doesn't get identity from me. I don't get identity from her. I get identity from God, but I, my gift to the world is my, who I am, Right, is my identity, right? Not what I do, but who I am. And so when with kids, with children, the, the two things that to give them wholeness and resiliency in a world that's crazy is that they can hear from God and that they know who they are. Those are the two gifts a parent can give a child. Help them understand who they are and teach them how to hear from God. The the way no everyone gains identity from an external source. Every human gains identity from an external source. So Jesus, when he's baptized, God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is receiving his identity in community from God. That's the only way to receive identity. So when people, the counterfeit to identity is radical individualism, which is I just come up with my own. Mm -hmm. That's what's killing us. Right. So, so, but we need to know the difference between the two. I'm not just coming up with an identity and saying, oh, I'm an evangelical born again Christian. That's not what God called to me. He's never called me that. That's what I call myself. That's a kind of radical individualism. And it produces separation. So if I walk in a room and I go, I just want everyone in this room to know I'm a conservative evangelical. <laughs> I've, I've created a war already. Yeah. yeah. Jesus never does this stuff. He yeah. doesn't do this. Paul says to the Jew, I'm a Jew, to the Greek, I'm a Greek, to the rich, I'm the, like, he, like we're ministers of reconciliation. So when I, but when I walk in a room and say, listen, my gift to the world is I'm an untire of knots. That's my gift to this room mm. is I'm an untire of knots. Every, everyone in the room's like, okay, whether they're gay or straight or Christian or atheist, or no one goes, oh brother, we don't need that guy in here. But if I go in there and, and what's fascinating is we're taught, it, it, it's amazing. We're taught to introduce ourselves in ways that cause division. Yeah. This is our this is how this is how much the enemy influences our culture. So with, with children and, and identity is is hearing it, uh, your identity from God. So the way you always start is with negative emotion. 
teaching kids how to process negative emotion is a great gift because they're going to have it. They're valuable. Negative emotions are valuable. How are we teaching them what to do with negative emotion? Okay. Why did you get mad? What are you angry about? Okay. Anger comes from fear. Okay. Tell me what you were afraid of that resulted in you become, what were you afraid of in that situation? And it always comes down to, I look stupid. I felt unseen. I felt unworthy. That's what it, it comes down to identity, right? That's all. Teach a child how to process through the false identity because what they'll do is go, I am ugly. Now I've got to figure out how to way to cope with it. Now the false identity is there. Now they got to spend the rest of their life, whatever they got to do to make themselves look different. Mm-hmm. Right. And it'll never go away because time can't take away a lie. Only truth can. Right. Right. And so they have to have a way to process that negative emotion. So if they come home and like, you know, I'm, our whole, our kids, their whole lives, we were to have been doing this with them. What's wrong? I failed the test. Okay. All right. So you failed the test. We'll study harder. Why is that such a big deal? We study harder. We get a tutor. Why is that a big deal? Because it's not that I fail the test. It's I'm a failure. Mm. I'm stupid. That's the killer in that. We're all going to fail. We all fail. It's part of life. It's part of how God made things with fallibility, but it's not an identity. But we teach our kids it is an identity. Yeah. If you fail this, it's going to ruin your future. It's like you're never going to, which puts shame on top of the failure. Now you're in the enemy's territory the whole way. Do you see? Right. And so you want to teach them, hey, listen, you're going to fail a test because you stayed up too late or you didn't study or whatever. That can always be corrected. Always be corrected. Don't it's what you do with it's we're going to failure is learning failure is learning but if you pull identity out of a mistake you're in big trouble right mm-hmm. so you stood up to give a speech everyone laughed you're embarrassed okay let's work through that let's walk through that because you're going to stop giving speeches because of that and you shouldn't because now your identity is telling you you can't talk anymore in front of a group or i'm only a background person or all that nonsense it's not true right, right? and so Negative emotion helps the child process through. Here's my strategy for processing through negative emotion. And the way you learn true identity is by telling the truth about what you believe about yourself that hurts you. Always. Mm -hmm. Right? Always start with, tell me things you believe about yourself that hurt you. like Or names people have called you or things teachers have said or what have I said. And let them say it. I felt like you're ashamed of me. I feel like I'm a disappointment to you. Mm. That's a killer to kids, those feelings. But they don't, where are they going to get rid of it? They don't know what to do with them. I'm going to try harder. That's the worst thing they could say. Yeah. Because then, now life is all about achievement. Because God's disappointed in you too, by the way. Mm. So you better get to work. You better right. get to work. Right. And God didn't create us to get to work to make him like us. Right. Right. So that's the thing. So anytime you're dealing with identity, it's always start with, Lord, this is what I believe about myself right now, that I'm not smart, you know, that that I'm not as smart as them, I'm not a good parent. Just start there in that beautiful truth telling, because if you, if you truth tell enough, you won't, it'll stop. You won't have to keep doing it. You'll be, it'll stop before it ever becomes something you got to go to God and talk about because you start not receiving it anymore. Yeah. And that's the goal, right? Then someone, I always tell our people, look, I, I should be able to stand up in front of 20,000 people and say the worst thing I know about you. And it doesn't affect you because you don't get your identity, with right. 20, but from what 20,000 people think about you. Right. You exactly. 
right? Once a person has that, once they get their identity from God and God alone, they are, you can't stop them. Wow. That is so powerful. Such a good lesson and something I know that I'm going to put into practice with my kids today. I mean, I'm just like, that's just one of those things that like immediately you can. And, and I even think with friends sitting down in godly community, sitting around, you know, with your friends and saying like, what is it that you believe about yourself? And how can I, as your friend, help you to replace those lies with truth? With what God says about, yeah, we, in in our staff meetings um, every Tuesday, we go around it's like what a negative emotion is anyone experiencing and because we're all experiencing them. yeah and we and we're, we've learned to confess together our whole staff 16 people we confess together every tuesday and confession Amazing. is just wow i'm really struggling with like i feel intimidated about what we're getting ready to do why because i just feel like i'm not going to be able to carry my part of it that's an identity statement mm. i'm a failure i am the weak link I am the, we have to get that out of our team immediately because every identity is valuable. And if you lose a hand, we need that hand. But do you know what? Most teams don't act like that. They're like, ah, we don't really need them. We need this person. We need this person. We don't need these people. And that's all part of the lie. Man, that's so powerful. Jamie, I could talk to you forever. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, we got to end with uh, one last story that I, you've probably told a million times, um, but it is the story that uh, when I first heard it, I, I literally have probably thought about it every single day since the day I heard it. (laughs) Okay. So that's why I need you to tell this story. Um, So you were, um, you'd been doing this conflict resolution in um, Iraq and um, you and a buddy, and I guess it was, he was a coworker. So I I want you to tell it obviously had, had been having dinner regularly with uh, somebody you'd been uh, trying to kind of work with and uh, something happened that really changed everybody's life. Um, and so would yeah. you please tell that story? Because it is. Whew. Yeah. I, so I think this is what you're talking about. So we were, it was um, three of us, me and two other guys um, sent to this location, not in Iraq, we were in another country, but in a pretty tense um, situation where there was a lot of potential terror. It was like a greenhouse location for, for terrorist recruitment and all that. And so refugee situation. So we were we were sent into this location and it was in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it was way off the map. And so it was just the three of us unarmed because of how we work. Um, we have to go. So we have to go into this location at night. That's just we have to be dropped off in the desert and then they have to come out and meet us, the people we're going to. Not to sketchy at all. <laughs> I know, yeah, it was really sketchy. So we, we get flown in to an air base in a country by a foreign military, and then we get sent out into the desert. And the mil- that military leaves us, and we get picked up by this focused people, we call them. And they take us into their camp. And so I had been in there before, and I was telling the two guys with me, look, when they take it, when we get in there at night, they're just going to, they're out in the desert in these gigantic tents. And I said, they're just going to put us in a tent, in a room, in a tent. And um, in the next morning, when, when we get up, there'll be, uh, we'll go in this next room, and there'll be food at set it on the floor, you know, they eat on the ground on these carpets and and they'll have a plate for each of us and we'll eat and then they'll come in when we're done because in their custom it's it's impolite to watch a guest eat because you want they don't want you to eat less because they're you're being watched. So that's the custom. We go to sleep, get up the next morning, we go into the to the next room and there's three of us and there's four place settings. And so we're in there and one of the guys with me, he says why are there, or is someone else coming to join us? And I said, no, I'm pretty sure they won't come in until we're done. But 
he said, why is there poor play settings? I don't know. I'm not sure. Did they do, did they do this before? No, but I don't know why they're doing it this time. So I don't know. So we got, we eat, the guys come in, the men from the tribal group come in, we have start to have these meals and then each meal they leave and they set up this room and we go into the room and there's four place settings each time. So we were in there for a number of, a number of days in the situation and it was very tense and very hostile. And in, in, we're meeting with 12 leaders of these tribes and one of the leaders is very vocal and he wants us dead. He's, he's actually yelling in the meetings that they should just kill us. Just kill them. They're out here by themselves. They're U.S. They're spies. They're Christian. Just kill them. No one knows they're here. There's nothing they can do about it. We ought to just kill them and bury them in a desert. If you can imagine a meeting like that, one person screaming that. Yeah, a little bit, little bit tense. <laughs> yeah. And so... Um, Finally, after three three days of that, four days, we're we're having the dinner thing, and one of the guys, the younger guy, he asked me. He says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna ask him about this plate. It's driving him crazy." And he's, I said, "Whatever, you can ask him." So we get in the meeting with these guys, and so we're sleeping in the middle. We're out in the middle of the desert. It's so it's pitch black at night. You can't see a thing. And through the night, you're just we know at least one of the tribal leaders wants to kill us. So it's it's nerve wracking. Yeah. Know? And so we're at this, we're sitting with the men, they're drinking tea. They do this, they drink tea every night. We're sitting with them and, and my buddy says, hey, can I ask you a question about the meals? And they're like, yeah. And he said, "How? why are you setting four place settings for at every meal? And the, the tribal guy says, well, it's one for each of you. And and our guy looks around and he says, "Yeah, but there's there's only three of us." And he said, "No, the, your your other guy, the other guy that's with you, that he's not in here. He's not he, the other guy that's with you. Your security guy." And we're the guy, our, the young guy looks at me. And he goes, "Our security guy? Who's our security? We don't have a security guy." And then I know like what it is. You know exactly. Guy. Well, because the story I just told you about being in Iraq, you know, yeah, seeing those guys on the roof. Well, I've seen that in a couple of different scenarios, even more dramatic than what I'm telling you in these. What but, more dramatic, Jamie? Yeah. <laughs> I don't. We don't talk about them all that much because I don't want to like sensationalize it. But these are more subtle. Yeah, I'm just telling you. The higher the intensity of the situation, and the more you can see of the. It's a thin space between us and God. It's not a broad space. It's thin. And the more intense the, the evil cranks up, the more kind of clear you can see that what God's doing. So just think of like Stephen being stoned, right? He can see Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God because of the level of where he is in a situation. Yeah. And so he's not screaming out in pain. He's already past that part. He's already looking at Jesus and he's saying, Father, forgive him. Like he's beyond the pain. So the more the evil ratchets up, the higher the divine goes. It's gorgeous, but wow. most people are too afraid of it. Just, anyway, so so he says, yeah, there's a, your security guy. And um, he says, your security guy, the one that's standing outside right now. So I know it's a, I know what it is. And then uh, our guy says to the tribal leader, he goes, what does he look like? And then the tribal guy realizes we can't see the guy, our security guy. And so the, the Muslim guys, they start laughing and whispering among themselves they're kind of amazed and they use the word malaika which is which is arabic word for angel and they're like oh they're saying among themselves oh my gosh they have malaika allah they have an that's an angel of god with them which they were wondering about and so they they say the guy the one outside is peace they said he's bigger than you guys but he's from you like he's the same like race as you but he's bigger than you 
and uh, um, and he's outside and he stands outside your tent all night long. He's your security guy. Wow. And we realized then that's why that's why nobody's moved against us at night is because there's a, we have a security guy standing guard. Wow. And again, apparently he's intimidating enough that no one messes with him. Yeah, I guess so. So they so that's why our guy said, "What does he look like?" and then they describe him, and then they said, "We wanted to ask you a question about him ourselves." And we said, "What?" And they said, he, "Why does he have a sword?" We, we want to know why your security guy has a sword. <laughs> we, we just burst out laughing. We were like, "Oh my gosh, our security guy has a sword!" <laughs> and they said, uh, "They said when we were walking around, they said he's always behind you. He's the fourth guy. He's always behind you whenever you guys are walking around." And so then the then and they could all out. see him. Yeah, they could all see him, but he didn't look like, you know, they didn't think of him as an angel. They just thought he's a big security guy that carries a sword. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so then after they realized we couldn't see him, then, um, then, the, then it went out among all the, there, that was, a, it was a group of, there was 250,000 of these dudes out in the desert and wow. it went through all of them that we were the ones that had the, the angel of the Lord as our security guy. So yeah, it really caused the guy that was saying we, you know, we got to kill him, blah blah. That guy later came to faith. Wow. Yeah, he did, wow. and he became um, kind of our main spokesman in the situation, which was really cool. It was cool how he later came to faith. It was through other situations, but that was the beginning of it for him. Unbelievable! Wow, Jamie. So- um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to just go ahead and tell you right now when your next book comes out, we're going to have yeah. you back on the podcast and you're going to tell us the other stories because I, I, I mean, like I said, that was the first one I'd ever heard and it has stuck with me ever since then. And it, and it, honestly, it's given me, and I, and I realize that, you know, we kind of even bringing it back to what we said at the beginning of, um, in Habakkuk about how we hear these things and then translate so others can understand. And for so many reasons, that story, at least for me, I mean, I'm never going to live in Iraq. Like I live on a farm in the middle of North Carolina, but for years I have believed those things. Like I've believed that like God has angels and that they're all around. And, and I believe in the spiritual forces of this world. And some people might be like, that's woo woo or whatever. That's fine. You can think that, but I hear these stories and that just helps me see how that is practical. Like I, I believe that God is in all those situations. And I, I, I just, I believe that. And so to, to hear that and to hear those stories just as that confirmation of like, and almost like helps to build that childlike faith within each of us of, um, because my kids regularly, like, I'll just say this real quick. Um, so we lost, uh, two babies back in 2018, um, during the second trimester of pregnancy, uh, within a six month period. And my son, my youngest son, um, Amos, um, so our, the boys we lost were named Elijah and Malachi, um, respectively. My youngest son, Amos, um, who was two at the time, you know, he doesn't, remember, quote unquote, that time. But he regularly now at the age of seven, he was in um, our friend's car, he was riding in the backseat, and he was talking. And my friend said to him, who are you talking to? And he's like, Oh, I'm riding back here with my brothers. Mm. And she was like, you are? (laughs) You know what I mean? And he's like, yeah, I talk to them all the time. Little things like that, that just he's not making that up. Like he regularly talks about his brothers and, and he, and he talks about being a big brother and yeah. 
you know, so I just, it builds that child. And it's like, I don't want him to lose that connection to his faith in, in God and, and faith that he's going to meet and see his brothers one day and all those things. So the, the stories like yours just really encourage me. Um, and I just, yeah, thank you for the work you do. And thank you for being oh, here yeah. and, and, te- and sharing oh, these stories because just they're really impactful. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, for a, a lot of the times when we've had you know, the, it, people would say, you know, it was situations where people, the less dramatic was people saying, hey, we saw you down by the stream and who were you talking to? Mm-hmm. They'll say things like that. And I'll be like, I was by myself. And they're like, no, 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 there was a person there with you. Like there, there's those times that we, we don't recognize that Christ is with us, that, right. right? That the spirit is with us, that um, is is constant it's the rule of how it is all the time it's not like some weird situation the fact that you get a glimpse of it occasionally should never i mean that's i get it's okay but man i was just with a guy that had an accident in a weight room and they told his wife like this guy's not gonna make it he was dead for 45 minutes and anyway they they revived him and all this meeting with him and he said he said you know in the whole time i never saw jesus or anything he said but when i was in that hospital room when i came to he said, I could feel the presence of God so close to me. It was like a weight on my body. Mm. Now I know that feeling too. And he said, and it, and I said, what, what was the emotion? Absolute joy. Yeah. But just absolute joy. And this guy's a super successful guy. And he said, the Lord said to me, he was so excited about me. Like, mm. that's right. That's how God talks right there. He's excited about me, not about anything he's done. And he said, I want to be with you more. And the guy just cried telling me that. It wasn't God saying, wow, you're an amazing business person. And it's like, I'm excited about you. And that's what made the guy cry. He said, I just don't think of God as just being excited about being with me. Wow. That's, wow. that's the only thing he's excited about. Yeah. It's like when we went to Iraq or wherever, whatever countries you go to work in, it's the Lord saying, follow me to this country. I want to show you something really fascinating. It's not like go save them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. No. That's the worst of it. It's about come with me. I want to show you something and I want to show your kids something that I c- can't show them in the US. So come with me. It's a joy to go. It's a joy it really is. And and that's such a sweet reminder of God just he just delights in us and he wants to be in our I mean right. he he became flesh so that he could dwell among us and so that right. we could then have the power of the Holy Spirit and we take that for granted that there is no other faith or belief system on planet earth where God, the, the God of that faith or belief system delights in their people and, and right. wants to be in communion and community with their people. And it is just so powerful to me. And um, I was even listening to uh, a podcast the other day that was talking about how, you know, God just loves and is so excited, like you, you said about his people and, you know, the pagan cultures of that time for, for Jesus to say that God loves you and delights in you and is excited about you was just mind blowing because the pagan cultures of that time, those gods were annoyed by their people. Like it was just, I mean, and so for somebody to hear, wait, God like wants to be around me. Like it likes me for who I am and who he created me to be. That was just mind blowing for them. Um, and so, but it's a sweet reminder for us that, that God just loves us and he delights in us and he wants to be in our presence and he wants to take that fear from us. And we just have to ask him and we have to confess and repent. And oh my gosh, we went to church today. Uh, Jamie, (laughs) thank you for being here. Thank you for your work. Uh, It has been an absolute pleasure. 
nice to be with you. Thank you. Did I not tell you that Jamie is awesome? My mind is absolutely blown. So many takeaways from this conversation. Just even for me, thinking about how I can just do a really work to her. I guess work is not even the right. Maybe I wasn't listening, <laughs> but to, you know, really to take the the feelings and the questions I have to God and to just you know talk to Him about all of it. Man, I loved what He said when He said any kind of creative process always begins with asking a question. I mean, Jesus asked questions all throughout the Gospels. Oh man. Oh, I'm going to be thinking about his stories for days and weeks and months on end. I really hope you loved this episode. I would love to know what you loved or what you learned. Please let us know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Can I Laugh Pod on your social medias. And I would love if you would head over to whatever podcast app you're listening to and click the subscribe or follow button and leave a review for this show. It's free. It takes you less than probably 60 seconds. And it is a huge, huge help. I would just be so grateful. Also, I would love to come and meet you in person. I'm currently in the process of booking speaking engagements for summer and fall of 2023. And I would love, love, love to come see you. So if you are with a church or organization or company or conference and you need a speaker, I would love to be your gal. You can reach out to me, hello at stillbeingmolly.com and we can get that all set up and I would just love it. Thank you as always for listening to the show. Thank you for your support. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing. It means the world to me. Thank you to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing the show and for you, I hope something this week makes you laugh till you cry. We'll see you next week. Bye.